Hello and welcome to this very special version of Cultural Capital, which is almost going to be entirely dedicated to one of Hollywood's true stars, Jane Fonda. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. There aren't many people in the world who would make Cultural Capital throw the rule book out the window and give over almost all of our airtime, but we will still be sharing the Cultural Capital film diary. Ello. Can you explain to our listeners why we're doing this? I thought you were about to say there aren't many people in the world who would force cultural capital to dedicate an entire episode to Jane Fonda. But I am one of those people. Um, no, it was a much more democratic decision than this. Much more. But um, we all three of us went to see Jane Fonda last week live at Hamer Hall doing a talk with some clips from her films and discussion of her wonderful varied life with Fran Kelly from ABC who did a great job, I thought, moderating. She did. What is a fairly unwieldy life? There's a yes. lot of tangents to pull together. It's true. Absolutely. And it's she, true. She did pull them together with aplomb. Yeah. Shout out to Fran. Anyway, big fans of Fran here too. But we wanted to talk about the films and life of Jane Fonda so we could kind of return to the talk that she gave last week and also just um, focus, you know, our movie-focused show on a specific theme this week um, and take a dive back, right back through to the 1960s to look at some stuff that Jane Fonda has done. Um, And I feel like it's important to talk about her films and her performances because Jane Fonda... I don't know, I could be making assumptions, but he's known for so many things these days, like her activism, her um, workout videos, her, you know, being unfairly dubbed Hanoi Jane, uh, all of these types of things. And so it's really important to go back to the fact that she's actually just an incredible actor and that needs to be acknowledged. Anyway. Absolutely. Um, And, I mean, she really, as this uh, live event really brought home for me, she has had a hell of a career. I mean, she's been the sort of um, motivating force behind some classic films, which we'll get to, um, some sort of really interesting Hollywood films. And then there's all of the activism. There's the, as you say, the um, workout stuff as well. Um, there's her own personal life that she's very sort of open and upfront with um, about. So it was just an absolutely fascinating evening. There was no shortage of material that she talked about from learning um, at Lee Strasberg's um, classes with Marilyn Monroe as her yes, like, yeah, classmate. Little um, yeah, right through to, you know, making Grace and Frankie today. So I'm really excited to be spending more time with Jane. Yeah. So, Ella, where where would you begin to try and um, pull this life together into some sort of narrative? Oh, boy. Well, you'd have to begin with her being Henry Fonda's daughter, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. Well, I think well, she certainly did. Yeah, and I found what I found quite moving about seeing her talk about Henry Fonda, her father, at the event was how much she she's still obviously connected to him. He's not Henry Fonda. This seems like a really trivial thing to say, and I apologise for my poor construction of this sentence, but obviously he's her father, not just Henry Fonda, and so she still um, is connected to him in that way. And uh, I think you get the sense that to her for a long time he behaved like Henry Fonda not her father and that that was really something that needed working through. Um, but that was obviously something that she also pushed through when she was wanting to be an actor because she was always Henry Fonda's daughter, you know, rather than being on her own two feet kind of thing. And so always pushing through that. And so you have to acknowledge that. Also, they just look so similar. I was interested to note that for a long time she didn't want to be an actor at all. 
Because I suppose, you know, if you're a teenager and you're trying to form your own identity, you're not going to just do what your dad's doing necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why she did, you know, I think she kind of went along to those Lee Strasberg classes because it was kind of assumed that she might be an actor or she wanted to please her family or follow in the footsteps. But she'd never really thought about it seriously until Lee Strasberg said, you've got an incredible talent. Mm. You need to do this. Interesting too how she said that um, Henry Fonda uh, was a man who didn't particularly enjoy his fame and had a very sort of ambivalent relationship towards that. And he was, I mean, he's sort of like a, you know, a particular archetype of American masculinity in a way, his, uh, his persona on screen. I mean, that's something very complicated to work, uh, live up to. And, of course, they worked through this relationship or they, they presented a variation of this relationship on screen in the film On Golden Pond where they played a father and daughter um, just a few months before he died, I think. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, she wanted to work with him and she wanted him to have an Oscar finally That's for right, yes. his yeah. contribution to films and this is going to be a tough one and the winner is Henry Fonda accepting the award is his daughter Jane Fonda oh dad I'm so happy and proud for you she got him one. Mm. That's the way the narrative goes. So that's, yeah. But part of her forming her identity was moving to France and marrying Roger Vadim, I gather. Mm. Yeah. So when did she do that? Like 65, I think. Um, well, for already, sure. Yeah. She'd already established herself. Yeah. Yeah. She'd already been in a number of films. And I'm not sure when her like most kind of famous one was before that. But she was in a film, Tall Story, um, with Anthony Perkins. I've seen her second film. In fact, it's one of my favourite films of all time. What? Really? <laughs> I think Andy's feigning shock. Like, I don't say that no, every no. single episode. <laughs> this is like a really obscure movie, isn't it? It's called Walk on the Wild Side and it has since been released on DVD. It's an Edward Dimitrik film from 1962. It's been released on DVD in the last couple of years, but before then it was out of print. It was only on VHS, I think. Um, I saw it on a research trip to New York a couple of years ago in a special screening room, um, which was really wonderful because, you know, before then I didn't realise that it was going to get this attention, but thankfully it has been re-released. Anyway, this was her second film and she is not in it a lot. She's kind of in the beginning and then she's in the end, but there's this huge, you know, segment in the middle where she, she disappears. So she plays this kind of a homeless drifter called Kitty Twist who's run away from a girl's um, foster home and she's really, you know, she's got her tomboyish kind of nature and she's got, you know, scruffy hair and a dirty face and is wearing, uh, you know, jeans and shorts, uh, but very, very energetic and kind of, you know, abrasive and just a terrific performance. Rise and shine. Surprised, huh? Every part of me cried out for attention, so I gave it. Man, you sure do look different. Oh, boy, you not only don't talk much, you don't say much. Food, come on. We're all wasting time. Let's eat. Come on, then. 
So really, really terrific. She got a Golden Globe Award for Best Newcomer for that performance, which just says, you know, from back then she was being recognised. And as, the Globes are always right, obviously. This is like <laughs> what we, I'm taking away from this. Well, right? in 1962 at least they were right, so there mm-hmm. you go. But she, the other uh, reason I love this film is that she worked with Barbara Stanwyck. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, okay, cool. Um, who, it was Barbara Stanwyck's second last film and Barbara Stanwyck had quite famously worked with Henry Fonda in a couple of films in the 30s and 40s as well. Um, so that's just a nice little connection there. Well, it's really it's funny that you mention this because um, one thing I'm sort of realising is that early career Jane Fonda, there's this really interesting overlap with late career golden age of Hollywood stars. Um, yep. And she talked about her relationship with Catherine Hepburn on, on Old Golden Pond. And she came across as this hilarious sort of inspirational, slightly competitive, but inspirational mother figure of an actor. So I, I find that really interesting. Yeah. Is there any proof point. that Barbara Samick took her aside and gave her some pearls of wisdom and some <laughs> staggering genius? Uh, look, there's not, but I can't remember where it was. It was when the AFI gave Jane Fonda her Lifetime Achievement Award and she gave a speech about no interviewer, no one had ever asked her about her acting style and being a woman and that no one had asked this incredibly rich kind of collection of women actors Mm. about the experience of being a woman and about the actual acting technique. The only person was Meryl Streep. And in all my years of filmmaking, only one person has ever asked me, tell me about film acting and guess who it was? Her, Meryl Streep. It would be her, right? It would be Meryl, the only one that's asked me that question. And I told her, you know, it's all because of me. I gave her all my tips. (laughs) She has me to thank for it all. And she referenced, like, that she had, as a young actor, spoken with Betty Davis and Barbara Stanwyck about that kind of thing, but that, you know, it was a real pity that people didn't ask her about these things. Yeah, and imagine being Marilyn Monroe and in that acting class and then having Lee Strasberg go, sorry, not you, 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 Jane Fonda, you're, you've got it. Like it must be kind of a bit demoralising for other actors to see that sort of <laughs> being shelled out to the daughter of a famous movie star. Well, that's true, I guess, and, you know, maybe that's maybe it wasn't shown up particularly. But what I find, I don't know, what I yeah. find interesting, you know, mentioning that kind of crossover with the the um decline of golden age hollywood is that film the china syndrome which i really love and i think the ending of it is maybe one of the most powerful endings that i've ever seen but she works with kirk not not kirk douglas michael douglas obviously the son of kirk douglas so you've got these two kind of children of these incredible um, bastions of golden age hollywood and then working with um Jack Lemmon, who is obviously incredibly important as well. And so that is a really nice, you know, connection in that sense. It's about people, people who lie and people faced with the agony of telling the truth. Right. People like Kimberly Wells. A television reporter paid to smile, not to think. A few words about a veterinarian who makes house calls on sick fish. Or is it aquarium calls? Richard Adams. Um, and where did, she, where did she go after Walk on the Wild Side? What was... 
she made a couple of films and then she made The Chase in 1965 or 6 with Robert Redford. It was the first of her four Robert Redford collaborations. Um, really interesting film, I believe. No, it's not on Netflix. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's really fascinating. But then she um, had married Roger Vadim by this point and then she made Barefoot in the Park, which is so fun. Why is she Barefoot in the Park? What's going on with that? <laughs> uh, believe it or not, she's Barefoot in the Park because she's having a fight with her husband um, and goes outside even though it's snowing. Anyway, this is a Neil Simon play. I didn't oh, realise. Oh, R.I.P. Neil Simon. Yeah. Yeah, so he just passed away last week, this week. Yeah. Yeah. Last week. Um, but last time I was in New York, this was uh, being staged on Broadway with Jake Gyllenhaal. Right. Which I would have loved to have seen, but instead I saw The Glass Menagerie with Sally Field. I had to make my choice. <laughs> yeah. Barefoot in the Park, the barest, rarest, unsquarest love play that ever left Broadway to find happiness on the motion picture screen. Paul, if the honeymoon doesn't work out, let's not get divorced. Let's kill each other. Let's have one of the maids do it. I hear the service here is wonderful. So in uh, Barefoot, in, in the film, in that Gyllenhaal role, we have Robert Redford. Yes. Now, they collaborated on so many films together, didn't they? I mean, they're just a film on Netflix. Yeah. called this year. Yeah, called Our Souls at Night. I think it was last year. Last yeah. Year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's really, you know, it's a great friendship, I think. They only made four films together. There was The Electric Horseman in the 70s, I think, late 70s that they made. Um but yeah. So now this uh, title, Barefoot in the Park, um, does this refer to the fact that she complains that the Redford character is not as sort of happy-go-lucky <laughs> and will not take off his shoes and run around barefoot yep. in the park? Yep, you okay. got it. Yeah. Okay, so it's an interesting central he's, you dynamic. Know, yeah, he's a little uptight. Okay. Uh, it's very funny. It's also a song, um, Barefoot in the Park, that plays during the opening, I think, and closing credits. But, you know, they're newlyweds and they go to the Plaza Hotel and there's this very funny moment where uh, someone's delivering the paper to their room and then it's a montage and it cuts to, like, the fifth day and they haven't picked up the paper yet because, obviously, they're newlyweds. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I remember that from when I was younger and saw it um, as kind of this funny imagery. Anyway... Forget it. They're never coming out. How long's it been now? Five days. That must be a hotel record. Uh, and then they move into their apartment and things go awry. So anyway, it's mm. great fun. It's such good fun. Uh, it's really, I mean, a lot of those kind of uh, sex comedies in the 60s were a bit crappy, kind of, you know, quickly made um, and the, the scripts weren't necessarily very impressive or what have you, but you've got some nice stuff here and obviously you've got the charisma between the two leads as well uh and charles boyer isn't it fantastic right speaking of um sex comedies uh, with a sci-fi bent um (laughs) shall we come to that that role that um (laughs) has come to really define into popular consciousness early jane fonda and that is of course barbarella directed by roger vadim from 1968 Meet the most beautiful creature of the future. Her name is Barbarella, and she makes science fiction something else. Jane Fonda is Barbarella. 
Barbarella is a five-star, double-rated astro-navigatrix Earth girl whose specialty is... Love. Shall I tell you what I would like? I think I know. Andy, your thoughts on Barbarella? Well, yeah, it is interesting, and particularly the way she was talking about it. Like, it was, I suppose it was kind of uh, an exciting cutting-edge movie for 1968, but then also it seemed very much influenced by the dynamic between Vedim and Fonda, mm. in which he was kind of writing and directing her and then getting her to be all this kind of salacious sort of sci-fi. I suppose, like, you know, if what you were thinking was missing from sci-fi at the time, after, <laughs> around 2001, was boobs, then this was the answer to that. But it seems like she kind of see, had problems with it now, but then at the talk she was talking about it and she was quite kind of happy and thought it was kind of funny. And Yeah, like she's just turned and become laid back on it. Yeah, yeah, it feels like, I think she kind of suggested it was almost like a different person or a different, certainly a different era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like that she said, you know, Vadim had been married to um, Catherine Deneuve and Bridget Bardot before her. So no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was that was very good. But actually, I think the most interesting thing to come out of Barbarella was the way the power it gave her over the next few years of her activism that she became like you know she was billed as the face of Barbarella coming to Vietnam of the face of, you know or Barbarella goes to talk to the soldiers mm. who are about to fly out or whatever. So it kind of gave her this prestige or this this access. Yeah, it gave her an had. image, didn't it? I mean, I don't think she was always very fond of that. And in fact, some of her roles, you know, her her haircut that she had for Clute was, I believe, you know, done directly to uh, counteract the kind of image that Barbarella had given her. It's such a strong image. I can Mm. see why... Um, you would have to sort of proactively resist it. I thought she she was incredible in this film. That is, it's quite. It is, looking at it now, I mean, it is uh, it totally objectifies her. I mean, there's this. Um, uh, I mean, the opening scene is this sort of striptease in space, really, which is quite. I mean, um, I mean, I don't want to say visually stunning, but it is. <laughs> it is. There's a creativity to the film, although it is very. I mean, yeah, it absolutely does. Um, objectified her to the nth degree. Um, I just want to give a shout out to the film's tagline, which is "See Barbarella do her thing." I just think that's a yeah. jazzy, cool um, <laughs> uh, tagline. But I, she is such a fascinating performance in this film and character because she's sort of she's not naive, but yeah. she's it's yeah. so interesting because she, you know, that kind of solidified her sex symbol yeah. image. But in the film, she, I mean, she is naive, you know, she like doesn't understand uh, human physicality um, because she's obviously a space alien kind of thing, you know? And yeah. so, so it's really interesting because it's not as though she can be taken advantage of or anything, but it's kind of, she's kind of acting counter to what she then became. Mm. Maybe. Well, I know. I, when I saw it, I thought mm. she's just being an airhead. But the more that I think about it, the more I'm like, actually, this is one of the most savvy airheads you've ever seen. Like, she's it's a, such a knowing performance. Like, mm. as like of, she does enjoy the sex. Like, remember she when she meets up yeah, with David yeah. Hemming Duran Duran. Uh, <laughs> It's just absurd. I think you know what I want. And she, she like, begins to, like, strip off. She's like, yes, I do. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I want to have sex the way I've heard you do it on Earth, which in this, the universe of this film, the way that people have sex on Earth is you hold up your hands to each other and have a pill. And she's really disappointed. And she says, oh, no, no, I want to get physical. Like, that I found really interesting. Also, I love the shaggy rug uh, spaceship. It's so of its time. Like the floor, the walls, the ceiling is all this like, um, you know, like piling rug, uh, like carpet. Dr. Duran, could you hand me a garment? 
I have been sent here by the President of the Republic of Earth, hopefully to save you and to bring you back to our own Earth planet. Earth planet? Never. Shall I tell you why? Because I know too much. Here in Sogo, I've learned truth and essence. I speak of the dignity, the nobility of pure evil. Would you hand me some boots? Barbarella is obviously an incredible film and I'm glad to hear that Jane Fonda has come around to it again. Um, but I think it really did kind of pave the way for, you know, her next move, essentially. It seems like every act in Jane Fonda's life, and she speaks about her life as being made of three acts, which I find really interesting because that new HBO documentary about her is called Jane Fonda in Five Acts. Yeah. Mm. And so I don't know where those five about. come in. Yeah. Those extra two. We won't know for another month until the HBO doco comes out. But... um. You know, that she really kind of did things to respond to what her image was at the time or to build, like she actually thought through how her next step in her life could add to her life experience, increase her contribution to the world kind of thing. And so what she did with Clute um, and then, you know, when she went to Vietnam that she was really, really, really um, making an effort to change her life. Yeah, and the lives of as, as many people as possible. She talked mm. about how she was in Paris and she was kind of laid up and sick and then was watching the news and realised that she was getting a very different news than she would have gotten if she was back in the mm. US and seeing exactly. this, actually what was going on in Vietnam and she became very, very moved by that. And she mentioned reading this particular book, which I, the name of which escapes me, but it, it was like a, it was a short philosophical book, I think, about Vietnam and she put her in the mindset of the people there and... That became more important than anything else. There was an interesting point later on where she talked about potentially leaving Hollywood altogether and then fellow activists were like, no, no, we need somebody in Hollywood like you with your profile to be able to talk about these things. And so it was, it was interesting because a lot of other people, I think, would have just gone, okay, I'm just going to take politically you know, appropriate roles. But she was like, no, I'm going to take interesting roles mm. that allow me to express myself as an actor and also are going to give me this profile. Um, so that's what I think is so interesting about Clute because Clute is – Really, like it's so driven by her and her character, and there are so many moments that feel to a twenty eighteen like viewer shoehorned in that just allow her to go. This is what I'm thinking, and I'm going to talk to my psychiatrist about what I'm thinking, <laughs> and this is where I'm at with, mm-hmm. with my life. And so it gives her a chance to like win an Academy Award, just you know, justifiably because it's a cracking role. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just just seeing that sort of almost not quite teeth and hair performance, but like really, really edgy, really kind of electric. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, and with her, <laughs> her with Donald Sutherland, you know, that, that chemistry between the two of them, that chemistry, you know, in physical attraction and also just, you know, absolute hatred is so incredible. Yeah. But I do want to – I just want to step back a bit because you mentioned her Academy Award win for this film, which she got deservedly so. But she was first nominated for an Academy Award with oh, yeah, um, they, shoot they Shoot Horses, Don't They? Yes. Uh, which is an incredible film and is an directed by... Sydney Pollock. Sydney Pollock. Tootsie. Uh, <laughs> always a shout out to Tootsie from Andy. Always. Thank you. But is, you know, an adaptation of a novel that was, I believe was quite popular from the 1930s that had, or 40s perhaps, that had clued into some kind of like intense desire in the city of Los Angeles and indeed the whole country um, for a particular... Um, you know, that kind of satisfied a particular outlook. But anyway, this film is just incredible. I mean, if you describe the plot, like nothing happens, right? But her, just yeah. the the sense of, that you get of Jane Fonda's 
exhaustion in this film is beyond anything else I've ever seen. I mean, you can see it in her face and her voice and her body that she's just getting more and more tired. So if you haven't seen it or if you're not familiar with it, this is a dance contest. It's 1932 dance marathons. This goes for, I think, 1,200 hours or something in the end. Um, this dance contest has been going for it doesn't even finish before the film ends no you're right Um, you know so you don't kind of know but basically couples go and they dance and if they can dance you know whoever dances the longest gets them gets you know wins money kind of thing and it's a it's a metaphor for all sorts of things but essentially you can see it and you can just see how these americans both who participate devour themselves to get any kind of money or reward, but also that that audiences will go, everyday citizens will go and watch people kind of essentially kill themselves. But it's just incredible, like acting tired. I don't know. I feel like you can act tired for one scene and I don't know, I'm not an actor so I wouldn't know, but maybe you can tell us, Andy. Well, like if, you, if a director says act tired, you act tired, but she gets more and more and more so when you can see it. Yeah, I think, well, the best um, analogy I can think of is the Beatles song, I'm So Tired, which John Lennon wrote. And it's not a boring song to listen to. You can hear the tiredness in his voice. He's singing about being mm. tired, but it's still a really, really interesting thing to be as an observer for. But whereas if you and I want to write a song about being tired, it would probably not be as interesting as that. So, yeah, it is inspirational, I think, the way that she pulled that performance out. And, yeah, Sydney Pollock, man. And it's actually also um, they shoot Gilmore's, don't they? One of the better episodes of <laughs> Oh, well. In which that is. Uh, interesting. Interesting. I thought this was a brilliant film. It's one of the best films I've seen in forever. Mm. Um, you're right. There's just like exa- this collective exhaustion that takes over in these people based on real – these were real events that happened in Depression-era um, in the United States where people, they just dance and dance and dance and dance and dance. Um it's yeah. Her sh- her character was fascinating. Um, I thought Pollock was really uh, exceptional at um, spotlighting a few of these characters and then going between them. And I mean, the film barely, in fact, it doesn't really leave this central, this one location where the entire um, dance marathon's happening. Like it's it's apart from a couple of um, sort of cutaways, it's all sort of set in this one location. Mm. But my God, does he! Um, explore it to its fullest mm. extent yeah. um and yeah as a film with things to say i think very very vitally relevant now what 50 years almost mm. after it was made mm. still um just exceptional uh, yeah it, it resonated very strongly for me um yeah i thought it was an exceptional film there's a line in there that i noted down when i rewatched this the other day that the announcer you know kind of like the the mc of the dance marathon um, played by Gig Young, who was, you know, around kind of in classical Hollywood yeah. time. Um, I think so he got nominated for an Oscar for this too. Did he? Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Anyway, he um, he says, uh, he references the Great War. You know, this is 1932. It was not yet called First World War. So he references the Great War because there's someone who appears or maybe someone who's dancing who was a, a, an ex-soldier. And he says, let's hope there's never another one or, or something. And they just thought, I mean, obviously it's a period film, so they knew that there had, in fact, been another one. But mm. g- given what we know of Jane Fonda's political consciousness, that that's a really interesting line to kind mm. of get in there. And, I mean, obviously the film is all about the American dream just being something that just guts people um, unsuspectingly. But, yeah, that line. Anyway. Exactly. And the uh, 
the fact, yeah, the illusory nature of it is just unbelievable. Um, mm. uh, just clarifying the Gig Young thing, he won the Oscar. Oh, so, yeah. or he did best yeah. supporting or best, best actor? Uh, yeah, supporting. Okay, yeah. all right. Which brings us to this episode's film diary. The Persian Film Festival runs from September 6 till 9 at the, Pal- at the Palace Kino. Highlights include Mohammad Rasolov's A Man of Integrity, about a farmer in northern Iran who takes on a mysterious industrial company. The myth featured film Dressage, about a teenage girl's ethical dilemma after she is pressured to take on more than she bargained for when she and some friends rob a corner store. It's also screening. To celebrate the release of Bruce Beresford's new film Ladies in Black, Acme is running a festival of the same name, celebrating 1950s fashion, with a workshop, a screening of the film, and fashion designer Wendy Cork at an in-conversation event. Also at Acme, the On Your Bike Festival showcases films about cycling, which includes the Australian premiere of Time Trial. On Your Bike runs from September 10 until 25. Over at the Astor Theatre, you can catch a double bill of Johnny Guitar and Shane. Johnny Guitar and Shane? What? Oh my God. Everyone should go there. On September 9. (laughs) (laughs) September 9. Okay, good. I'm there. (laughs) And a double bill of THX1138 and Logan's Run on the 12th. And from the 15th to the 21st, you can see a 70mm version of The Sound of Music, in case you need to see it again. Is it a sing-along version? That is not Oh, thank God. All right. I think Zach will probably be okay with that. (laughs) Um, What's happening over at Cinematheque, Ellie? Well, at Cinematheque, starting on September 12th, we have our Vera Hitlover season, which we're co-presenting with the Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia. Um, Wait, who? I'm speaking on the behalf of our listeners. Like, who is... Vera Hitlover is... You may know her for making the film Daisies. Oh, her! Yeah, her. right. She's great. Yeah, so uh, showing a lot of her films, including The Apple Game, Traps, um, a couple of her short films as well. But that's... Uh, I, I think that this year is maybe the centenary of her birth or um, there's some reason why... Um, why her films are being shown in retrospective this year with the Czech and Slovak Film Festival, who we have co-presented with for all the years of their um, running. So it's a really wonderful thing that we get to do with them. Um, and, yeah, they're on coming up in September, so check out their other stuff as well. They're showing some other retrospective stuff, including Milos Forman's The Fireman's Game as their closing night film, which we at Cinematech screened a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago. But Milos Forman unfortunately died earlier this year, so it's kind of a tribute screening to him. Anyway, it's an excellent film. But that's what we have coming up. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, three weeks of Vera Hitler. Cool. Um, before we dive back into our conversation about Jane Fonda, we should t- I'd like to take this moment as a collective to sh- give a shout-out to our fellow fellow Melbourneian podcasters, The Rereaders, Mel Campbell, Dion Keegan, and producer Ari Janor. They've been podcasting for years um, in their current formation with their current um, announcers and we just have always, you know, said hi to them. When we, I remember one night we were all having drinks at the same venue after podcasting together and kind of caught up and said hello. But we felt like it was a nice thing to do to acknowledge them because it sounds like they've wrapped up their um, podcasting. Yeah, in that formation anyway. Yeah, yeah, for the time being. And so we talked about, I think, you know, we have talked with them about doing a, something of a crossover episode or something fun like that, but it never got to happen, unfortunately. Yeah. 
Mm. Um, anyway, it was sad news that dropped in Melbourne town this week. Yeah, definitely. And they were, um, I mean, had developed quite a following and, uh, um, you know, an integral part of this city's culture yeah. conversation. They're so. going for much longer than us, five, yeah. five plus years, I, I think. think. fixtures. Yeah, and yeah, I just want to give them a special shout out because about three years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, they let me come on and talk about my ultimate love, Barbara Stanwyck. Wasn't it Molly Meldrum you were talking about too? Oh, we also talked about Samuel Johnston as Molly Meldrum. That's correct. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, but, uh, Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck. But Barbara, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we also talked about the um, Rebel Wilson vehicle. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. Single, how to be single in New York or something. <laughs> I've forgotten that Oh, that's TV that series that yeah. got cancelled. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, 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 it was a no, movie. It was a, yeah. Oh. Sorry, what was her TV show that got cancelled? I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway. anyway. Uh, I think pretty sure Molly got cancelled pretty <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Let's stop hijacking the conversation. This yes. is, uh, yeah, just wanted yeah. to give a shout out to the rereaders. Yeah, yeah who are like are the closest in, like the, the, the closest neighbours we have as podcasters, really. It's true. So totally. we're looking over our fence and seeing a change of personnel. It's, we can't let it pass unremarked. Um, also, <laughs> we should acknowledge their key role in the formation of cultural capital as well. Should we? Yeah. I didn't have Should anything we? to do with okay. this. I'm just going to sit back. Yeah, okay. So Mel Campbell, like <laughs> cracking reviewer, um, <laughs> another key writer who's always, you know, worth listening to, um, took a role at uh, Rereaders that was advertised and openly. So a f- bunch of people applied for that role and two of those people formed this podcast. They did, When yes. they were rejected. Uh, so, yes. So Andy and I both applied for the role that Mel Campbell got <laughs> and then we decided, okay, um, why not start our yeah. own podcast? So thank you, and Rereaders, for inspiring And then they thought, us. oh, shit, we better get a girl on. So <laughs> hence I was <laughs> I was invited along. Thanks, Elo, for stepping in and saving our bacon. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, thank you so much, Rereaders, and we'll hopefully be able to listen to um, all of you in various guises in the years to come. Yes, in whatever format that takes. You feel that Ms. Fonda's made a lot of money in this country and she should support it. I do support this country. Um, as I said before, I came back here because I love this country and I believe that in order to, to preserve the ideals upon which we are founded, this is where I have to be. I am not a communist. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I just believe that the war in Vietnam is turning other countries around the world against us. I believe that we cannot survive as, as, as a democratic country when we are supporting someone like Q in Saigon, who has put 300,000 political prisoners in jail because they've spoken in favor of peace. Uh, I just don't believe that when a Republican Party bugs the Democratic Party headquarters, that that smacks of democracy, uh, these kind of things I speak out against. That doesn't mean I'm a communist. So returning to our discussion of Jane Fonda, we've left her at around clue to clock. Mm-hmm. Oh, clue to clock. Yeah, she's about to <laughs> take on that. Cause she picks up that Academy Award with that and everyone's breath was baited apparently when she was about to get on stage and give that speech with that oh, yeah. alarming new haircut. Yeah, mm. they thought she was about to go on a rant about, you know, the unfairness of the war and, and everything. But, but at that point she turned back to her father and said, what should I say? And he said, there's a lot of th- things to discuss and now it's not the time to discuss them. Yeah, he probably said, say nothing. A man of restraint. He sure was. Um, yeah, so she won the award for Clute and then what happened? I mean, well, she went to Vietnam after that and then she got um, pegged with the nickname Hanoi Jane and she was 
you know, kind of set up with this FBI file back in the States. She mm. had 32,000 pages, she told us. Mm. Very, very handy when you were writing memoir. Hoover on her She back. was a, like, Nixon. A, accused officially or maybe not officially, but she was accused of treason or and, and they wanted to kind of kick her out of the country or, or lock her up or do something because she had expressed um, distaste for the war in what it had done to both the American soldiers and also the victims, the civilian victims of the war in Vietnam. Um, you know, so all really, you know, beautiful, heartfelt humanitarian concerns that she had. And obviously we know that governments don't always look kindly upon those concerns. No, but actually she checked her privilege multiple times throughout this conversation. Like, you know, if I was not she wealthy did. and white and a woman, I'd probably not be dead. She know, did. She did. That's true. Um, and that's, you know, a really great thing. But I think that that's why she felt that she could, in fact, go so far with a lot of her protestations and activist um, duties. Yeah, and what I think is really interesting is that point where she became the most toxic to American culture at the time when there was still a lot of people mm. you know, defending Nixon from an increasing barrage of accusations and evidence that um, she was almost – it felt like she was on the verge of being blacklisted almost, but then she chooses to make Coming Home yes. and wins an Academy Award for that, like the validation of the – of Hollywood. Absolutely. And, and this is um, a landmark film, I think, in many uh, ways. But if we're talking just Jane Fonda and her career, um, it was, I think she, her, well, it was, it was her own idea. She got the idea after talking with um, Ron Kovich, who is mm. the paraplegic Vietnamese war veteran who serves as the inspiration for Born on the 4th of July, the Tom Cruise yeah. character? Is it Tom Cruise? It's Tom Cruise's yeah. vehicle. It's his Academy Award I've nomination too. Oliver film. Stone film? Yeah, Oliver yeah. Stone. Right yeah. um, and right. So interestingly, the uh, same figure also um, inspired this film, which she created um, as the first feature for her production company that mm. she sort of started, uh, directed by Hal Ashby, who was sort of a landmark of Ameri- uh, filmmaker of the period. Yeah, yeah, really fantastic. And just to kind of return, so when she was still living in Paris – with uh, Roger Vadim, she made Tuva Bien with Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Gorim made that in 1972. And then after the, the, the you know, that infamous photograph of Jane Fonda on the, um, on sitting on the weapon in Vietnam mm. was dubbed Hanoi Jane and there was this big controversy. Anyway, they, the, the two of them, Godard and Garam, made a film called Letter to Jane, which was just an hour of them kind of talking about, I guess, the, um, you know, the significance of her and and whatnot. But anyway, so that was in the early 70s again and contributed to her kind of stepping back from the spotlight. Um, and she didn't talk about that at the at the event. So, you know, we don't know what that's um, what Yeah, there's a lot her. of things she missed, I feel. I mean, yeah, <laughs> of course you, have you know, an hour and 45 minutes is not all that much to go. But she does have several memoirs and stuff. So there's, you know, there is stuff to go into. Obviously. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that because I feel like that is significant as well for the things that occurred later in her career, um, including um, Coming Home, Mm. which was, yeah, Yeah. a really magnificent film. I don't know what's going to happen. It's bothering me, Luke. It's very scary for me to think that maybe it's not going to work out with him. I know. Because we've been together for so long. I 
it's going to be very hard for him. <laughs> He's not going to like the fact that I've, I've changed. And I have changed. You know that I've never been on my own before. <laughs> It's, it's a really it's a wonderful film really worth tracking down if you haven't seen it i think yeah 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 totally and interestingly she said um in surveys of american vets it's usually held up as one of the most sort of resonant film for um servicemen and women which is interesting and i can see why because mm. it is a very it's <laughs> honest isn't it yeah yeah honest exactly mm. honest yeah yeah, and it's an interesting um, film for that particular era when there was a lot of uh, paranoia going on, a lot of questioning of motivations, and a lot of doubt and all that sort of stuff. It really kind of captures that that quite beautifully, I think, uh, and, and very simply and with a great soundtrack. A great soundtrack. That final sequence is a Tim Buckley yeah. um, song. Mm. So, you know, all very, very moving. Mm. Um, anyway, after that, she quickly shifts into 9 to 5. <laughs> Nine to five has the critics raving on overtime. Bingo. The comedy hit of the season, says CBS Radio. I'm no fool. I've killed the boss. You think they're not going to fire me for a thing like that? Playboy magazine calls it the liveliest office party of the year. And the New York Daily News says Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton make a terrific team. Nine to five from 20th Century Fox, rated PG. Like, yep. I've just wanted to get me, what am I, I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm going to get fest. Lily and Dolly. <laughs> and Dolly um, yeah, but what I found interesting, it seems like at this event she spoke about the fact that it was not initially going to be a comedy, that it was in fact going to be sort of a similar kind of activist story where she'd realised that there were all, all sorts of narratives that everyday women in America had n- had no success in kind of getting known in their workplace. So, you know, a bunch of secretaries and office workers were being unsu- were unsuccessful in kind of revealing the sexism and um, that they faced in their workplace. And so it was going to be another film like that. But then when she kind of got Dolly and Lily on side, they rewrote the script as a comedy. It's kind yeah. of a musical comedy type Because of if thing. there's one word that you might be able to use to just sum up a lot of her work, it's earnest. And in this film she seems to have tried to strip that earnestness out and replace <laughs> it with as many gags as possible. Yeah, so, I mean, it's still there, right? Like, um, but, but yeah, you're right. My favourite bit is the uh, dream sequence or, the uh, you know, the high the, sequence, I guess. The Lily Tomlin's dream sequence where she's... Well, Jane Fonda's mostly, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, where they smoke some weed at the bar and then – or maybe they're back at their, you know – Yeah, back at Dolly's place. Yeah, back at Dolly's place by now. They Um, fantasise about how they're going to kill their manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jane Fonda kind of dons this ranger slash cowgirl outfit um, with a shotgun and uh, imagines shooting her boss – Played by Danny Coleman. Danny Coleman, who is very, in fact, very nice and attractive in On Golden Pond, is her, is her partner, and pretty much plays exactly the same role in Twenty. <laughs> it's like a misogynistic <laughs> boss. He gets dre- dressing down. Well, very, very. He's very good at, at doing that. He's great. In yeah. that case, but um, yeah, I love that one, and I think it calls back to like some of her uh, Western origins because she did play something of a like Western gal in, might I just add, Cat Baloo, which I did identify as one of my favourite. Female-driven action movies in an earlier episode of you certainly did. Cultural Capital. Um, but anyway, yeah, 
just love it, right? Like, who doesn't love it? Nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's pretty hard not to like. And a sequel is in the works with the original cast, she said. (laughs) The same company, Consolidated Industries. Oh, my God, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Rashida Jones, I think, is involved in co-writing it. Yeah, that's that's right. I remember when that came Mm. out, that news came out. Mm. Yes. And all about the gig economy, she said. Yes. Yeah, the insecurity of jobs. So you don't even know who to complain to if your boss is mistreated. Yeah, I did. I did, you know, like, I mean, obviously I don't think that Jane Fonda is not someone who would have this on her radar. But, you know, that, that that's a consideration that she's always up to date with what's going on and what particular things are happening in the world and yeah, what is. things people are suffering under. So, you know, that she's updating it. That's great. Mm, for sure. She's woke. <laughs> she did say the word woke. I don't I don't really like the word or meaning behind woke. Just going to say that. Um, but she did, yeah, she did pull it out, mm. didn't she? Did she? Yep. Yeah, she must have. I can't remember it in reference. <laughs> the context, no, but it to, was. To what? But it <laughs> might have been when she was talking about her later political activism where she's door knocking in Michigan <laughs> maybe, with Lily Tomlin. Maybe. And imagine those two turning up at your door. Yeah, totally. Totally. Come in for a cup of tea. Um, yeah, anyway, after 9 to 5, I mean, what happened then? A bunch of stuff in the 80s. Well, t- t- Ted Turner happened to her. Ted Turner I think, and then her. she was right. like, do I even need to work again? I own a third of Montana with my husband. Sorry, Montana with my husband, <laughs> who's one of the few billionaires in the world at that time. Yeah, you said that, Very Andy. It's, very it's staggering, yeah. And, but he's also one of these really... Like I'm um, clued in guys who decides to spend his money on saving swathes of land. I like that animals. she referred to him in the first maybe minute of this event last week. Her favourite ex-husband, Ted Turner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a, he's got some fair company there. Yeah. <laughs> Much of it in doesn't have a bad resume. And that <laughs> kind of hippie protester guy, activist she was with in the late 60s, whose name escapes me, was seemed a pretty clued in guy too. Tom Hayden. Thank you, Tom Hayden, yeah. The father of her second child. Mm. Anyway, but she uh, well, she essentially and third child. Sorry, I shouldn't. Um, she they adopted a, a daughter. Anyway. Oh right, oh. thank you. Um, interesting. Well, she essentially was this when she would sort of stepped away for a bit from acting, and she got into I mean the aerobic stuff, mm. which is a well that was, was a in phenomenon. the early eighties. So that was that's it was yeah. straight off the back of nine to five. I think it must have been around the same yeah, time. Yeah, around the same but then, time. But then yeah, the interesting yeah. fact what she dropped was that it was just a fundraising exercise for a leftist political. Exactly. Isn't that amazing? Yes. This sort of all American uh, like st- uh, institution of American popular culture, and it was essentially she essentially just did it to raise money for leftist politics. Well, I mean, I love that, and that she admitted that. But I don't. I mean, it's not just significant because she's like a pop culture icon because of the videos and also because she did it to raise money for activism like she actually the the reasoning behind it was that women couldn't go to gyms at this time there were no you know public spaces in which women could exercise and so she did a very important thing in filling this gap that housewives and just women everywhere needed which was the allowance that they could exercise at home and that they could be be fit and so that that is a part of Jane Fonda's image to me and her outlook is that she's always looking for and she's always working hard to let women know what they're not told by the patriarchy you know which is essentially that they can be independent and they can exercise at home Mm -hmm. uh, and that they are allowed to do these things and that they are allowed to feel things and we know we see that with her getting older and speaking openly and, you know, adapting her exercise videos to 
you know, people to octogenarians and mm, septuagenarians. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know what that word is, but I'm no, just you're right. Septuagenarians, as, as did Angela Lansbury. Yeah, 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 that's true. There are a whole lot, but Angela Lansbury didn't become quite so. Um, no, popular. but I was wondering if um, Schwarzenegger's videos came before Fonda's, or if she kind of started the whole thing, because I know she is responsible for the sale of a lot of video cassette recorders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting that I don't know, but I think that I mean, you know, the women's market is a huge market. And so, well, I don't know if it was given back that, then. I think she might have helped invent well, it. Well, given, well, I mean, that's essential. Like, given that men could go to the gym, I don't think that Schwarzenegger's would have done nearly as much because mm-hmm. they didn't need to buy videos to do it at <laughs> yeah. home because yeah. they could just do whatever they wanted, right? Anyway, that's what I remember doing in the early 80s, whatever I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And here we are, ready to work out. All right. All right. Ooh, Stand with your legs. A little more than hip distance apart, feet are parallel. You should have your good aerobic shoes on now so you don't have to stop before we start with the aerobics. Weight is slightly forward, pull up tall in the waist. This bone, the pubic bone, is curled up. So, yeah, anyway, I do see her, it wasn't just, you know, any old thing that she could do to raise money. Like, it was very well thought through, Um, an essential part of, like, where we're at today. So, Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I mean, this was actually gave rise to the most interesting point of the whole night for me was this moment, this revelation she had where she started writing a memoir at 59 and realised that she was about to enter into the final third of her life. And this was the point where, as with any good story, the first two parts have strands that have yet to be resolved and all these kind of suggestive uh, threads that have yet to be pulled together. And she was like, in the last third of my life, this is when an interesting story becomes really interesting and I'm going to write it. And she couldn't write it while being married to Ted Turner. Mm. Um, and so she had this interesting story about going fly fishing and then using that time to secretly write her story on a laptop. And then thankfully there was 32,000 pages of an FBI file she could go through if she, in case she'd forgotten anything from that sort of era of her life. And then moved to her, da- her daughter's basement in Atlanta to write it, which mm. just seems like a miraculous move. Do you know what else happened in Atlanta, Andy? No, talk to me. That episode, that movie with John Hamm in the black turtleneck. <laughs> Keeping up with the Joneses. Yes, <laughs> that I forced Andy to go and watch. <laughs> the last people in the world talking about this ago. film. Anyway, sorry to distract from no, don't. Fonda that did in happen in Atlanta, along with Baby Driver too. Can we talk about Baby true. Driver? Oh no, we can't. No, we have to talk can't. about getting up with the Joneses because of John Hamm. <laughs> oh, good lord. Um, anyway, I yeah, I love that way she spoke about you know the the last third of your life being the most interesting because you've lived so much and you can maybe do the best with you know and you're the happiest because you've. I don't know. And she didn't say it as in like you've gotten rid of the most important parts of your life or, you know, you, now you're just kind of cruising. That wasn't her attitude at all, was it? But No, she referred to it as a escalator. Yeah, yeah. Of the human spirit, yeah. not right. the body. Yeah, because the narrative you- prior to that was like a loopy yeah. kind of thing. Decline, yeah, slow decline or whatever. Um, and then, you know, interesting and reassuring to hear her say, you know, she's lived through every possible thing you can go through. So she's like, well, I've survived all of this. Yeah. Maybe the only more, thing more, she seems more. to want to do now is bring down the American government, mm. which yeah. she's kind of always wanted to do in some way or another. <laughs> now. Especially now. Um, well, yeah, you know, and she says that the upcoming midterm elections are maybe the most important American elections that she's lived through, which is an astounding thing to hear her say. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's been alive since 1937. Right, mm-hmm. um, and so that that is just incredible. But yes, I, I do remember reading an interview with her shortly after the 2016 US election, where she said she never envisaged that she would still be fighting for this stuff. In mm. you know, when she was 80, 
because of what she had fought for throughout all of these prior decades that we would have gotten to a point of progress by now but she's 80 and she's you know doing it again like credit right yeah with lily tomlin door to door yeah changing minds yeah winning hearts yeah, and also winning hearts on Grace and Frankie. Yes, which we got to see a clip of as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, anyway, I don't know if you guys watch it, but when this is currently, it's going to be in its fifth season in January. Um, and I love this show so much. I will block out an entire weekend when Netflix is releasing the, you know, their seasons. So I love it so much. And then you just watch it in a, in a weekend and it's gone. And then you can just rewatch <laughs> it anyway, which is okay. Like, you know, bless the internet. Anyway, um, I love this show so much. And the yeah. two of them together, the way they get along and interact. Um, yeah. And she still seems to be finding time to putting us in solid efforts in films like The Book Club. Yes, the book club, which we haven't seen, but we have it on our lists for this week. Yes. There may well be more fun to chat. We hope <laughs> so. <laughs> I'll put it on another top three in the coming months. <laughs> okay. Don't you worry. No, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> People are being enlivened, emboldened, activated that never were before. We have an opportunity now to really, really make a difference because people are recognizing what's at stake. It's never been this clear. You know, you, you, oftentimes you have to go to another country to see what could happen. But this is actually our democracy is being threatened. And I think people are awoke. And that brings us to the end of episode 52 of Cultural Capital and our Fonda chat. Thank you very much for making it. Um, why not get extra thanks from us by throwing us some stars um, on iTunes? That would be great. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Eloise Low Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. And we think you're great. Mm-hmm.